Hello, hello, hello. So, if you're listening to this, this is a surprise episode of the Traveling Career Girl podcast. So, this is technically episode four, but it's not really an episode. Um, I don't know. I'm just... So, I'm currently in Philadelphia. And I'm kind of going through some different emotions right now, being here in this city. So, if you know anything about me, you know that I have pretty strong ties to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You know, for a very long time, I had one of my situationships. Uh, Let's just call it for what it is. It was a sugar daddy slash that type of arrangement. Um... And I had, he was in my life for, you know, a solid amount of time. I'd say like at least, you know, five, six years. And, you know, during the time that we were together, um, you know, I, I have no bad things to say about this person. Um, you know, he was an amazing person, uh, I mean, he had some quirks and some antics about him and, you know, he did some embarrassing shit, uh, while we were together. Um, but overall he was a really good person. And I think just being back here in the city, cause you know, yeah. Have I been back to Philadelphia? Um, and by the way, I need to throw out here that this, person that I was with for five, six years. He's no longer with us. He passed away. Um, but just being back here in the city, it really brings out a lot of emotion because I haven't really been in like actual like center city Philadelphia and well, I honestly, since I was with him, um, and it's been a while now. And, um, you know, whenever I would come to town, cause I was really, I was regularly coming out to Philadelphia, very consistently, very frequent. Like I was coming out here every two weeks. So I, for literally like half of the year during this time, I was practically living in Philadelphia, just, you know, with him at the house and, um, you know, now that he's gone and seeing all these places that we used to go and walking past them. I mean, I'm really going through the motions right now. Like I'm starting, I mean, I'm not getting like emotional, emotional. Like I'm not sitting here and I'm not sobbing. I'm not crying. I feel sad. I feel like I definitely, I I feel What's the emotion for missing someone? But that's the emotion I'm feeling. You know, I miss I miss the good things. I miss the good times. I miss all the positive things about this person. Um, you know, it was more to me than just money. Like, and, you know, this person, I mean, he blessed me like, beyond comprehension. Like, I just... And it didn't start off like that either. Like, it was not, like, you know, that type of a situation right out the gate. Like, it was grown to become something. But, 
And I think maybe the reason why I just wanted to make this episode was like knowing that he's now passed away. Like, I just wanted to talk about him. And I just wanted to talk about the the, the time that I had with him because he really was a awesome person. Like, in the grand scheme of things, when you really just sit and admire and look at all the things that he had done in his life and all the thing, all the people that he had been able to help along the way. Like, he was not a nasty, greedy person by any means. Like, he was very giving as far as not so much financial, like, to other people, but he was very giving in knowledge and very giving in advice and very giving in just being a sound person that could give solid just life tools and tips and whatever. But I don't know. I am really missing him right now, though. And all of the things that I did in my all the things that I did to contribute to, like, you know, any type of, you know, grief or stress. Because, you know, I mean, we had our moments where, like, we would get in disagreements and, you know, arguments. And there were several times where, like, we were, we would dump each other. We would split up with each other. And then, like, you know, weeks later, I'd be getting phone calls or he'd be getting phone calls or he'd write me a letter because he was very old-fashioned, like, very, very old-fashioned. When I say old-fashioned, like, he hand-wrote me letters. Like, he didn't own a cell phone. He didn't have Wi-Fi in his house. Everything was hardwired. Like, his computer that he had was, like, a Windows XP computer (laughs) from, like, when, like, the computers that I used when, like, I was in junior high school and he didn't have email like he was very disconnected from the present world that we all live in and I think that's one of the things that I really loved about him was that he was just so different from the rest of the world and he didn't let the world convolute what he knew and the world that he knew because the world that he came from And some people can sit there and talk shit about it and be like, oh, like, you know, the world that he's from, the time that he's from, it was just so backwards thinking. But there were so many things about everything that he knew that were just so right and things about the world that I wish were still here. But I don't know. Um, So... My, I'm, I don't even want to call him, like, a sugar daddy, necessarily, because when I think of him and that word, like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, is that what he was? Yes, but he was more than that. Like, he was a friend of mine, and so when I'm sitting here and I'm thinking back on my friendship, you know, my friend's name was Hardy. I'll just say his first name. Um, nobody needs to know the last name. If you know, you know, if you don't, great. But, um, 
Hardy was an awesome person. So I met Hardy in Philadelphia, obviously. I was on tour. <laughs> it was I was on tour. I was getting ready for um I was getting some surgery done. I that was I think it was like my I think it was like my third nose job that I had gotten. So and I was like hustling to try to get the money the rest of the money for it um all pulled together. So I was obviously, you know, on tour. And um I got a phone call from this person. And wow, I'm noticing now that I'm starting to get a little teary-eyed. So I mean if you catch some tears in this conversation, you're getting some raw emotion. Uh <laughs> But, um, so I was, <coughs> I was actually visiting Philadelphia and I'm actually currently staying in the same hotel that I was staying in when I first got the call from him. And coincidentally, this hotel that I'm staying in, it actually, uh, the restaurant that was here at the hotel, um, it used to be his favorite restaurant. Um, the restaurant is no longer there, unfortunately. They shut down during COVID, but his favorite restaurant ever in Philadelphia was the Prime Rib. And if you know, then you know that the hotel, and I don't care if I say the name of the hotel I'm at right now because I'm not going to be here for much longer anyway. I leave, I leave in a leave tomorrow, but um, I'm staying at the Warwick, the Warwick Hotel in Rittenhouse Square. Um, it's a classic hotel. It's been here for years and it's an institution in Philadelphia in itself. Um, but his favorite restaurant was the Prime Rib. And so I got a phone call that night. This was back in like, I think it was 2000 and oh God, 15, something like that. Got a phone call from him, and when I called, he was very difficult because, you know, he only had a house phone. He only had a landline, so it wasn't like I could easily text him or verify him, really, even, because um, he didn't have email address or nothing like that. And there was no reverse phone lookup, and he wasn't active on the Internet and nothing like that, but he had the Internet to, you know dabble and look things up and that's what he did and so that's how he found me and I'm surprised <laughs> looking back on it I'm surprised that the fucking computer even works to um worked well enough to even find the websites that I was on or anything like that but he had called me and I was like you know well like you know where do you live and he lived and he he lived um, about thirty five minutes south of Philadelphia and uh, in the boonies. Like, well, it's not really the boonies, but it's like you know, it's more residential. It's more very quiet down down there and where in the area that he lived. Um, it's very green. It's very wooded. Like all the houses are very large, and they're all separated like so you know your closest neighbors like you know a couple acres away or an acre away so um he was like oh come down here get an uber and you know i'll pay whatever you want blah 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 and i was like okay so 
you know, I got myself an Uber and I went down there and I took a real leap of faith because he's like, because I, 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 this was, I was also around, this is also around the time where I started asking for deposits and, um, cause you know, Cash App and Venmo were, you know, starting to become a bigger thing. And, um, he's like, he's like, oh no, I don't do any of that. Like, I'm not going to. I don't, I don't, I don't even, I don't own a cell phone. I don't own nothing like that. Like you either want to come or you don't want to come. Blah, blah, blah. He was very, the thing about him is that he was very like blunt. He was so blunt. Like he, any, he, he was very unfiltered too, much like myself. And I feel like that's why we got along so well is because he just, if there was something that popped into his mind or if there was something he was thinking of, if there was something he needed to say, it would just blurt out, even if it was bad. Like, there were many times where he would just blurt things and it would just sound, like, so off. And he just... That's just how he was. Um, but... So I was like, all right, you know what? There's something about his voice that made me feel, like, kind of reassured. So I took a leap of faith and I went down there and... That was that, and, um, you know, I got to the house, and there he was, and he was dressed in his normal attire, and he loved to wear just, like, a bathrobe, like, most of the time, just around the house, and, you know, he really, you know, he, the house itself that he had, you know, it was a stunning house, it was... He had that's such a story behind it. It's like he bought the house back in like the nineteen sixties or seventies, and it was when like he had finally come into some money. This was like you know yeah, it was very early on for him, and he had finally come into some money, and he had always kind of come from his own family money. Like I'm not gonna really pick into the depths of his family money, but um you know, he did things for himself and, you know, he made do with what he had and, um, just so happened it worked out for him very well. And I don't really want to explain or talk about the details of what exactly he did throughout the course of his life to really amass the wealth that he had, but he was worth billions of dollars. Like, and it was, and he was, I don't know. So, so when I got there to the house, um, when I got to, when I got there to the house, it was stunning. Um, he lived in a very, uh, very secluded area. Like there was really nothing around. There was no cell service. Uh, there was no street lights. It was all wooded and there were no neighbors around for acres and acres and acres like it was like the only house I mean it was so shrouded and hidden that the driveway to get to the house was like almost covered up by more shrubs it was almost like as if like the house was just abandoned and no one had been there for like 20 years but when I finally figured it out and the car the uber was pulling up to the car you know he had you know motion sensor lights that flickered on and you know all of a sudden I'm looking at this gorgeous house that just all lit up but um the house was built in like the 1700s and so part of the house was 
like, you know, it was hand-built and it was made of stone. Like, you know, how most, how you see a lot of houses uh, in, you know, rural Pennsylvania, like, you know. But he had added on to the house. So, like, I think in, like, the uh, the 70s, is, or no, 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 excuse me, I take that back. So for a long time, this, the house was, like, you know, just this stone old house. And he's always used to tell me, he's like, you know, I don't need much. Like, he's like, I'm a, he was very practical, um, minimalist person to a degree. He was minimalist as far as, like, he was minimalist in his own needs. He's like, look, he's like, I have a roof over my head. I have food in the fridge. I like nice things, but I don't need nice things. And, like, so... I think in like the early or no, excuse me, the late nineties. That's when he's. That's when it was. Yes, in the late nineties, when he really, really, really amassed wealth, um, he decided that he was going to completely renovate the house, and so he had saved the front half of the house that was made entirely out of stone. But then after that, he had entirely bulldozed the other half of the house and demolished it. And he had hired out a famous architect, um, a famous architect firm here in Philadelphia, and he had um, made a entirely contemporary modern home on the second half of the house, and it was honestly a work of art. And um, for the artwork of this particular episode, I'm going to just attach... Um, a picture of the house from the outside that I have on my phone and I'm just looking at it now and like you know if I zoom in on the picture like you know I can see him sitting on the couch but um but yeah he did a he did amazing things and he I think he spent like close to like two million dollars adding on to this house and after he had done all that, the house was featured in, like, Architecture Digest, and it was, like, you know, all over the place, and he had a, he had a, he had a book written about the house because it was just so intricate and special, um, and when I walked into the house that evening, the first night that I met him, I, you know, I didn't really realize who I was dealing with, um, but, when he walked into the house, it was just covered in fine contemporary art, museum quality pieces from famous, famous, famous artists. Um, and this is the person that I actually learned quite a bit of, quite a bit from uh, in regards to of art and history and culture. Like he really introduced me to so much of that without his uh influence in my life like that I wouldn't know anything about art I wouldn't know anything about culture I wouldn't know anything about his like you know art history or so many different things pertaining to history of the world like there's so many things that I know that I know my generation has no, no idea about because he introduced me to these things. And for that, I am eternally, eternally grateful. 
um, one of his favorite artists, actually his favorite artist. Um, well, there's two favorite artists, I guess he had. Um, but he had a number of their works. Um, Anselm Kiefer, who is a very famous contemporary artist. Um, he actually knew Anselm Kiefer, uh, very well. And Anselm Kiefer is an artist from Germany, uh, still alive to my knowledge to this day. He just lives in his castle in the countryside in Germany and he just makes these remarkable pieces. Just very moving, very just filled with emotion. And a lot of his influence for his pieces comes from uh, the major world wars, World War One, World War Two. And uh, I think predominantly World War One, though, because I believe that is when he was born, was around that time. Um, but when I walked into his house, you know, he had a 30 foot long by 15 foot high original Anselm Kiefer work. It was a painting. But it was more than just a painting because, you know, there were so many different mediums that were used in this particular piece. There was like, you know, a metal grate that was attached to it and it had several several uh, different mediums on their straw, acrylic paint, um, you name it. Like it was all over this. It had uh, metal tools attached to it. And um, the, particu- the name of this particular piece was uh, Woolen Lead. Um, and it uh, made ref- it was referencing uh, World War One, of course, but not only that he so he had a few different pieces from Anselm Kiefer, and then uh, one of his most prized possessions, and I know that he told me it was like his prized possession. There was this particular sculpture that was made by um, George Boswitz. I think he is also a uh, he's also another German artist um, but um, and we only call he called it and so I only call it as um, I, I know it as the head and it's a sculpture that was made of a, a old petrified tree trunk and it was quite big um, and it was, um, the artist had carved it all out with like a chainsaw and a chisel and it was a immaculate head. Um, it wasn't necessarily, uh, like, a physically an anatomically correct sculpture, but it was interpretive and it was a head and it was painted yellow and it was sitting on top of a pillar in his living room with all the proper lighting around it. And it just looked, it made your jaw drop. It was just breathtaking. And it was one of his most prized possessions. It was, I actually, um, after he died, I was really curious about what was going, you know, who was going to buy the art because when he bought the art, it was, you know, much lower priced. And of course, with the price of inflation and everything, you know, I'm sh- he would just be, I I know that he would just be 
in complete disbelief with the value of his art and what it was purchased for because he's like, I don't know what I'm going to get for this. They're probably going to try. There was a time where he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do because like, you know, what if they want to, you know, offer me something less? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, I would never want to sell this art. And that's one thing he always told me is that when he passed away, he never wanted to sell the art. He never wanted to have it commissioned off or auctioned off or anything like that he what he wanted to do was he wanted to donate a lot of this art back to um he wanted to donate a lot of this art back to uh mostly the Barnes Foundation because he did go to school there in Philadelphia and uh you know, of course, the Barnes collect the Barnes Mus- the Barnes Foundation, they 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 only have so much art in there, and um, you know, I don't know if they would have. It I don't know if it would have gone with like you know, everything that is currently in there, because uh, the Barnes Foundation it has more. Um, it's not necessarily a contemporary museum. Let's put it that way. So the art necessarily it would not have fit the look. But um, I found out that, you know, he did a lot of he did a lot of uh, his purchases in his business through Sotheby's. And so I found, you know, I looked up his art on Sotheby's and they had a full blown, like hearty auction of all of his stuff. And I know that he bought the head, the head by George Boslitz. I know um I know for a fact that he bought that for about half a million dollars and it was sold at auction for about, uh, I think it was sold at auction for about 9.5 million. So uh, that in itself makes my head spin. And then the other thing that drives me up a wall is that the fucking Wollen lead, the Wollen lead painting that that the the fifteen foot by thirty foot long, uh, art art piece that he had hanging on the wall, and this is the other crazy thing about that piece, that particular piece, is that when he built, the second part of his house, the art was so big because he had already owned the art, the art piece was so big, that the house had to be built around the portrait, and like the wall that the piece was attached to. Um, it had to be craned up because everything was so heavy. So they had to like build the wall on the ground and then attach the art to the wall and then lift it up and secure it to the rest of the house. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then when I found out what happened to Wollenlead, like the Wollenlead piece, he told me that, you know, it was... I think he bought it for about $800,000 and then the he said that the piece was valued at about 10 million. And so for the longest time I thought that that was the, the most expensive piece. Uh and then I've come to find out that the piece was actually sold at auction for about 1.5 and I was like holy shit. So I don't know. I I mean, I'm talking about his art, but like I'm and and the reason why I'm talking about the art, I think is because like I just got done like, you know, Googling all the 
stuff with Sotheby's, actually. I, did, I didn't know anything about... I know that Sotheby's had, had acquired the art pieces, um, but I didn't know what they had gone for, and I didn't know the, the details, and I never really um, followed up or followed through with looking that up until today because, you know, he was weighing heavy on my mind. And, you know, when people weigh heavy on your mind, then, you know, you want to start Googling and doing your research and stuff like that. But I know that I, I, I know for a fact that, I mean, I know for a fact that like, he wouldn't have not been pleased hearing that his art was sold off for so much and he had no debt and I mean his family made off family fabulously um but um yeah so and for those of you wondering um you know I was I, 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 you know, I was, you know, promised and let's just say this, Hardy blessed me in many ways and he blessed me and, uh, financially he did. And so I'm taken care of, but, um, I mean that it's great, it's nice, but, you know, I wish the person was here instead. Um, and, you know, my some of my close friends know how much he pissed me off and how much, like, drama I always had with him because there was drama, all, you know, there was, there was drama, you know. <clears throat> I don't necessarily want to spill his, like, medical history, but... He, you know, he had some issues and he wasn't 100% clear-headed. Um, he had gone through some shit when he was younger. Uh, and, like, he had, um, you know, he went, he went through, he had, he had some uh, deep clinical depression type shit that he was going through his entire life from childhood, like age five into his seventies. And like, you know, so he was really messed up to some degree. And, you know, he, doctors had him on clonopin and he would take fistfuls of clonopin and wash him down with a gym martini, like, you know, on the daily and, even after doctors told him, you got to stop this, you know, he just did not give a fuck. That was Hardy, so. But, um, yeah, I don't know. But when I met him that night, the first night, so going back to that, I keep getting, you know, my mind just keeps wandering. But when I met him that first night, he's like, okay, so you said, you, so how about this? How about we, mind you, I had taken a fucking Uber. From Center City, Philadelphia to 40 minutes south of Philadelphia. One way. In the middle of nowhere. In a house that I thought I was going to get murdered in. 
He's like, okay, well, how, how about we start off at $300 an hour and we go from there and see how each other, see how we enjoy each other's company. I'm like, excuse me, $300? Mind you, this person's worth billions. And he I had the audacity to offer me $300 for an hour, for an out call. And I'm like, did you see my website? Did you see what I request? I'm like, because it's all there, black and white. And you told me that you had it covered. And he did. He told me, I was like, you know, have you seen my rates? Because that's what I would normally say is I would link my personal website and I would post my rates on there. I'd be like, did you see my rates? And he stupidly was like, yes, 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 I have it covered. Without actually fucking seeing it. Fucking idiot. But, um, you know, then I was like, no, it's not my rate. I'm like, I'm like, and at the time... At the time, I had, I, I had, uh, you know, at the time, what I was, you know, coming down there for was around $2,000. And so I was like, no, I'm like, it's actually two grand for what you want. And like, you know, for the time you want. So cough it up. And he's like, $2,000? He's like, well, okay, you're here now. And so, like, you know, then he pulled it out and he gave it to me and it was no big deal. But, like, it just, it's funny to me. And, like, I know, and I know for a fact that, like, he had regularly seen the girls and he had seen um, a, a multi, of a very wide spectrum of all kinds of providers over the years. I'm not going to spill all of his beans, but he is, he was no stranger to people in the industry. And, um, and even while we were together, I, you know, I never cared. Like, you know, if he, you know, if I wasn't around, like, you know, call someone else. I'm like, but you're still seeing me at the end of the fucking month. And there's nothing that's going to change that. So, and nothing did change it, uh, for a very long time. And, uh. So that first night, you know, we hung out and we didn't really do anything. We just sat and we talked and I really got to pick his brain and he really got to pick mine. And when you're sitting and you're talking with someone like that and you're just like letting your guard down and you're really getting to know someone like you know, everything else is irrelevant. Like, you know, we got to really form a deep connection. And he was really lonely. Um, He was really lonely. Like, he was never married. He never had kids. Um, he had been in like, you know, situationships in the past and relationships like how I had with him in the past. Um, But he was really guarded. Uh, Before me, before me, the last person that he was really, and I know, and I know this for a fact, because he had told me so many times and I have letters with him writing this, hand handwriting this. And he would tell me how much, how deeply in love with me he was. And not the superficial love where you're, 
you know, physically attracted to someone or anything like that. Like, you know, there's a deeper love and, um, he would tell me how much he loved me and he would always end our conversations and all of his letters. He would always end it with the same thing. One of his favorite songs was you were always on my mind. And he would always say that to me. You were always on my mind. And, um, you know, so that night we just got to talking and he's like, well, time has really flown and like, you know, I really enjoyed this. How do you feel about coming back tomorrow night? And I was like, well, I'm like, I could come back tomorrow night. You know, I'm still in town for another night and I was needing to get back up to New York because my my surgery, remember? My surgeon was in New York, Dr. Mark Philstein. So um, I was like, well, I got to head up to New York because I'm making surgery. And he was like, I don't know why you want surgery. Like, you know, you look fab. You look amazing. Like, you look great. You look beautiful. You don't need anything. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I know what, and I told him, I'm like, yeah, but I'll only, I'm like, how do you think I got to this point? Is because I know what's best for me and I know what I know what I need to do in order to look like the best version of myself. And if you think that so far I've done a good job, wouldn't you trust my judgment? And when I said that, that like triggered something in his head. And he mind you, had already given me my money and he's like you have a valid point there. He's like, you know what? He's like, I really like you. He's like, how much is everything that you're doing? Let me pay for this. And I was like, are you serious? Like my surgery, it wasn't like that much money, like in the grand scheme of things. I think like the grand total that I had to pay was eight grand. Um, so I told him, I'm like, you know, I'm paying $8,000. He's like, here. He rips, whips out his checkbook and he wrote me a check for eight grand on top of the two grand that he um, had given me. And he's like, here, I don't want you to have to worry about it. Like, I want you to be comfortable and I want you to have, you know, the best. And so I'm like, wow. I'm like, is it, and for the first, and you know, one of my big things that I always did was I was like, never, I'm like, one of the big like number one ho no-nos is like you never take checks like you never take a check um because like you know let's be real like checks can bounce and you know the second the people get what they want from you it's like you know they could easily just put like a stop payment on a check so i'm like okay i took it with a grain of salt and i was like thank you and he's like yeah like you know go ahead cash it tomorrow and that's exactly what I did. And then, you know, because it was the first check I got from him, it took a fucking week to clear. So I still had to fucking pay. <laughs> I still had to fucking pay with my own money. But I did get the money back. And it, the check did clear. And um, and I went back to his house. And I went back the next night. And um, he's like, how much are you going to want? Uh, you know, to stay the night with me. And I was like, 
but you don't need to pay me. Like, I'm like you just wrote me a check. I'm like, you just literally have given me 10 grand in the last 24 hours. And then he's like, no, I want to be fair. And then he's like, I want, I want, I want to show you. He, he literally made it a point to be like, I want to take care of you. He's like, I don't, he's like, I know we just met, but like, he's like, you know, when I like something, I, when I like something or I like someone, I like something and I like someone and I want to be there for you and I want to be a part of your life. And that's literally how he posed it. And, you know, to anyone, I feel like at first glance, like, you know, you'd be like, oh, wow, I love this. Like, this is fucking great. I mean, like, little did I know all the, you know, the other shit that I'd have to put up with. But I'm not going to knock it because overall, yeah, even if I was stressed out many different times and, you know, there were times that I just wanted to fucking strangle him, like... I really miss him and I wish you were, I wish you were here. I wish, I wish I could, I, you know, you always have those regrets where you wish you, you wish you could talk to the person one last time or just tell this person how you really feel or just thank them or say sorry or something. And just like, I'm, and I'm really going through a lot of that right now, just being back here and being around all of the places that we would always frequent together. Like I'm really enveloped in these emotions right now. Um, and I was scared at first when I was, when I was, when I, when I, um, when I was Googling and I was released and when he had first crossed my mind earlier today, when I, when I got here to center city, um, cause I was staying in a King of Prussia before here. I was in King of Prussia for four days, which is about, which is actually closer to where he lived. Um, and so I just got here to center city. Like I said, this is the first time I've been back in center city since I was with him. The last time I was here was with him. And now that it's all starting to, like, settle in a little bit more and I'm around it more, like, it's starting to hit me a little more. And I was nervous earlier because I was, like, I, I, I didn't feel any emotion at first. And I thought I was going to feel emotion, but I didn't feel emotion at first. And I was, like, am I a sociopath? Like, am I crazy? Like, why am I not more emotional? Like, why am I not crying? Why am I not... And my feels a little more. And now it's finally hitting me. And I don't, I, and you know, I'm always like, you know, I've all, my entire life, I've always been like, no regrets, don't live in regret. Everything happens for a reason. But like, man, am I having some regrets? Like I'm having regrets just sitting here thinking about him and how things ended with us and things didn't end poorly, poorly with us, but they, you know, I didn't get to say what I really wish I would have gotten, been able to say to him. And, you know, I really took his, his time here on earth, his last time on earth, 
his last days on earth. I really took him for granted. Um, and I just didn't talk to him. And, you know, I have a voicemail on my phone from him that I still have and I keep it. And it was two days before he passed. And at the end of the message, you know, he says, you're always on my mind. And I listened to that for the first time in a while today. So I called the house phone, you know, thinking I'd hear it ring and it's just, you know, disconnected. But Yeah. It's sad. It's sad it's it's sad dealing with death and I don't know, this culture that we live in where like people are like sugar daddy this, sugar daddy that, like Like, you know, I need a sugar daddy or like, you know, I'm going to go to the nursing home and I'm going to try to find me a man. And it's like, yeah, sure. It's kind of funny sometimes, but these are people. So, and I think that that's part of the reason why, like, I think that's part of the reason why I really pride myself and I really try to make it a point to treat everyone I meet with kindness and love um, because all these people have real stories just like me so I don't know I mean I just like you know place a little more value in fucking people Um, yeah, I'm going to really miss him. Like, I can't even, like, I can't even go down the street without walking past a fucking restaurant we went to here. I was reading over his obituary again. Um, And uh, one of the things that he said, you know, just like, you know, in talking, uh, one of the things that he said in talking was uh, that he never wanted to have a funeral. Like, never wanted a funeral. He was like... He was really staunch about that. Like, he always said, you know, when I die, when I die, I don't want a funeral. He said, I just want to donate my body to science. And it's so funny. It's because I used to tell him all the time, I'm like, I don't know what science is going to want to do with your body. You use the hell out of it. Because, like, like I said, they used to take festivals of Klonopin. And he was a heavy drinker. Um... But I was like, 
I was like, babe, you ruined your body. I'm like, medical science is going to like, you know, throw you in the furnace. I'm like, I don't know why you want to do that. But he was very staunch about it. And he was like, I want to donate my body to science. And I don't know if that happened, honestly. Um, I know that they had a funeral for him. And I know that the family, like, you know, the fam, like, you know, the families are entitled to have that closure, but like, he was not close with his family. Like, and that's the part that I think maybe upsets me is that like, he wasn't close with his family. He only had a brother and his brother's kids and his wife and everything. So he had niece and nephew and his brother. Um, and that was it. And then he had a really good friend of his who was, um, I guess you would call her another situationship from the past. And when I say the past, I mean, like, you know, they were dating in, like, the 70s, 80s. And, like, you know, she, she, you know, this woman is now in her 60s. Like, and I know that he um, had continued to take care of her, even up to when he died, like he was still cutting her checks and still doing shit for her because he cared about her and he loved her and he wanted to make sure that she was good and she was secure and she was always there for him too. And, you know, for a long time, I thought like, you know, okay, I could see myself doing that for him. Like, cause you know, aunt, you know, this will, this woman was getting older herself and, you know, she had her own family. And so she couldn't, be around for him a hundred percent of the time. And for a long time, that person was me. Like I was the one who was taking care of him, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I guess you could say like he was almost paying me to be like a, another, like a caregiver. And I don't know, but <sighs> I know he had a funeral I hope they donated his body to science like he wanted. And then I know what he wanted to do at the house. He he told me, he's like, he's like when I die, he's like, I just want to bulldoze the house. And then I want to give the land back to the, like, to a land preservation conservator or a wildlife conservatory. Because there are, um, you know, conservatories and, like, you know, areas of land that, you know, can remain untouched and down in, you know, rural Pennsylvania. And, you know, they keep it for the wildlife and the deer and all that stuff. And that's what he really wanted. And, you know, every morning we would, um, every morning we would look out the window. We had a very large custom windows. And uh, part of his renovation was he um, contracted out a entire Japanese garden um, built by this famous landscape architect named Asher. And I think he spent like a million and a half dollars on this Japanese garden in his backyard. But we would just, you know, wake up in the morning, we'd stand out in front of the window and we'd just watch the deer just graze around the pond, the koi pond. and Very peaceful, very beautiful. And he's like, I just want to bulldoze the house. I want to leave the pond and I just want the deer to have the land. That's it. That's what he wanted. And then he wanted all the art to go back to the artists or 
something like that, but that's not what happened. You know, the art was auctioned off at a huge premium. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I get it that like, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that I was like the closest person to this man for the longest time, but for the longest time, I really was this, the closest person to this man. And, um, I mean, I guess just knowing that, like, some of the things that he really wanted for his final wishes, they weren't honored. Like, that really disappoints me, but it's out of my control. And there is a little bit of bitterness, I guess, you know, it's... As far as like you know the 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 financial the financial side of everything is concerned, yeah, am I a little bitter? I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little fucking bitter. I mean, you know, his family made off with <sighs> millions and millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> so, and he fucking couldn't. Yeah, to a degree, he just could not stand them. I mean, like, he even said it all the time. He's like, I can't. He's like, I'm not close with my brother like that. He's like, you know, he calls me if we need to talk about something. They were business partners, too. So, like, you know, they did, you know, his brother, like, you know, they. he was present for one particular aspect of their business partnership. He was present for one thing, but like he really didn't do much. <clears throat> Hardy was the one who was always doing everything as far as like, you know, the money-making side of shit and being strategic. But, um, and he could not stand his niece and nephew. I mean, like he, no, I can't say he couldn't stand them, but he said that they were both very just entitled, spoiled brats, which... Looking back on it and looking back on everything that I know about them, they are fucking spoiled brats, actually. They're fucking both in, like, they're, they're, about, they're around my, my age, a little older, honestly, and both just fucking leeching off mommy and daddy, and I'm sure now they're leeching off of fucking Hardy's, all of Hardy's legacy. Um, so, yeah, part of me is bitter, not because I didn't, get millions and millions of dollars, but it's because I know that everything that he worked hard to attain is now somewhere where he would have never wanted it to go. And it is what it is. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and try to argue it or fight it or anything like that, but like, um, it is what it is. And I just... I don't know. I guess I'm making this more as like a a diary, you know? Like, I, I, I know that I have a lot of girls who are in this industry um, that listen to me and that enjoy listening to my podcast. And I just wanted to keep it real with you for a second. Um, and I, I wanted to remind you that these people are people. Some of these people, yeah, sure, some of these people are fucking idiots. Some of these people are assholes. Um, Some of these people are weird. 
or cringy or whatever. But there's a lot of fucking beauty in a lot of people. And I just want to remind you of that with this. Um, Yeah, I just, I really wish I would have had a little more time with him. I really wish I would have had another opportunity to say a proper goodbye. Um, I wish I could have said some sorries. I wish I could have... I wish he could have said some sorries, too. Um, That would have helped me get some closure, too. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't get him. (laughs) So... I don't know. But... Overall, I just wanted to express to the world how amazing of a person Hardy was. Yeah, was he quirky? Yeah, was he weird? Yeah, did he fart in museums? (laughs) Yeah, did he call people fat and ugly to their faces? Yeah, he did, but the pros still outweighed the cons. And, um... I'm really going to miss him, and I miss him, and I'm going to continue to miss him, and I'm going to continue to think about him, because I don't want his memory to die. Um, yeah, but he was an amazing person, and he deserves to be remembered as such, and I really hope that, you know, whoever got the art. I hope it's getting taken really good care of because that was like a that was a piece of him. Like that was his I I don't want to say it was his identity, but like he lived, breathed, talked everything he about him was just about his art. That was his passion. Um I hope it's got good homes now. And I hope one day I get to, like, see some of these pieces again because there's a lot of fucking memory. (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm not going to sit here and cry (laughs) the whole fucking episode. I mean, I practically have. Um, but... Hardy, I miss you, and I hope wherever you are, I hope it's better than fucking here, because <laughs> I know how much you fucking hated it here. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for listening. Um, just treat people with kindness, and love one another and don't take people for granted so that's all anyway this is a surprise episode of traveling career girl podcast this is ya bitch taylor snyder signing off with a tear in her eye thanks for listening ciao